G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Our conversation this hour is going to take us back to one of the darkest periods in human history. During the period 1933 to 45, Jewish people throughout Europe were persecuted by the Nazi regime in Germany. The atrocity saw some 6 million Jews murdered under Hitler's regime. Now, about half of those murdered were from Poland. And what is not so well known is that there were tens of thousands of Jewish people in Europe who were associated with the Christian church in one form or another. These Jewish or Hebrew Christians were officially classified as non-Aryan Christians. A new book tells the story of a Hebrew Christian family called the Jocks family who were victims of the Holocaust. Jacob Jocks was a Hebrew Christian pastor and later a leading Messianic Jewish academic. Historian Kelvin Crombie has written numerous books about the history of the restoration of Israel and particularly the role of the Anzacs in that restoration process and he's turned his thoughts and his skills to this new book where he tells the story of this Hebrew Christian family. Kelvin Crombie, a special welcome along to 2020. Thank you, Good to be with you. Kelvin, we ought to start here, perhaps with your motivation for writing a book like this, and this goes right back to your boyhood, uh, reading some books about the Holocaust and uh, being captivated by the atrocity in that sense of, uh, of no doubt, astonishment as to how that could happen, asking questions why. Take us back to your early feelings around the issues of the Holocaust. Like many young fellows, I was interested in, in war, and but my interest probably went a bit further than many others. I I was reading some pretty heavy stuff as a young kid. Uh, I think about the age eight and nine, I was getting a uh, encyclopedia set every month. I think it was coming out from London called the Pernell's History of the Second World War. Pretty pretty in depth stuff, and there was a whole section there on Hitler's final solution to the Jewish problem. And, um, you know, I read through all the materials that was coming my way. Not to say that I ingested it all, but sufficient enough. But the photographs that were there of the uh, atrocities really, you know, got my young mind going. You know, who are these people and why were they being persecuted? And then um, I um, happened to purchase a copy of uh, William Shiraz's um, classic, um, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, even probably about the age of nine or ten. Uh, and Israeli family came to live on a farm in that area at the time. Very, un- very unusual. We saw foreigners coming down to where we lived. It was fairly remote. And I got to know about Israel through that time, Six-Day War. So things were just, you know, beginning to come together in my young mind. And I think I must have been about 12, 11 or 12, we went into the local town. I um, mean, I came from a little area called Babikin, and our local town was called Corrigan. And uh, went in there and to get a, either a football magazine or a cricket magazine. And I happened to notice a book called Treblinka. 
on, uh, which I didn't know at the time, but now I know it was one of the five notorious death camps. And I purchased that book instead of getting the cricket or football magazine. So I guess if I look back now and I think, well, what uh, 12-year-old rural Western Australian boy with no Jewish background, no, not from a believing Christian background, would, would go and do that? So obviously... In hindsight, I could say that uh, the hand of the Lord was on my life at that stage, even though I was completely oblivious to it. And so many boys have a fascination with war. And so uh, to be able to, uh, you know, subscribe to publications that come to you and to have those times when you can identify uh, that you became interested in what was happening and uh, even recognising the name of a concentration camp. Now, when you got to your adult years and you began to do a bit of touring around the world, you went to Europe and you actually visited some of these concentration camp sites. Well, I left Australia in 1978, ostensibly to go to Israel. I wasn't a follower of Jesus. I wasn't from a Jewish background. But all those seeds laid as a kid laid the foundation for me going, wanting to go to Israel. I was searching after the meaning of life, so I knew I'd find it in Israel. I uh, went to Europe in 78 first, and to live life to the fullest, which I, I did. I made a good attempt to. But in the process, also went to the Soviet Union, to Poland, to uh, East, even parts of eastern uh, Germany, uh, located various uh, Holocaust-related sites, went to Dachau concentration camp. And so even in the midst of all that hedonistic lifestyle, I still was going to those places um, that were fueled by that childhood interest. Finally got to Israel in 79, went to a kibbutz, and on the kibbutz there was a Holocaust survivor, didn't know her at all. But I had a kibbutz family and my kibbutz parents, um, one from Poland, one from Hungary, they lost all their extended family in the Holocaust. And so that made a bit of an impression as well. But I noticed that more and more as I was going around Israel that those from an Ashkenazi European Jewish background were primarily the remnant. The remainder of their families had basically perished. Wow. And so you can't but um, not take notice of all these different these different components and be influenced by them. You know, was it Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum? Uh, I even went there before I was a, you know, a Christian, before I was a follower of Jesus, and it had a very, very deep impact on me, as it would most people who go there. So, um, as did Dachau also when I was there the year before. So, so I guess all those things were beginning to tote up. Um, and then when I became a follower of Jesus in, in 1981, of course, things begin to take on a different meaning. You begin to understand things from a different context. And so those questions of, of why began to, to come back, especially when I, now as a follower of Jesus, began to understand more and more about the unique position of the nation of Israel in, in the eyes of God through the, his covenant relationship with him as a nation. I think you, you know, make why, a, why, why? You a very ask those questions. You make an important point, Kelvin, when you say when you are an older uh, individual and uh, you are a follower of Jesus, you look at things through a different lens. And when you come to this question of why, even the question you were asking as a young boy and uh, hearing about the stories of war and of the Holocaust, uh, when you eventually did visit. Europe and went to concentration camps, the fascination was still there in you. And I wonder whether it's uh, even premature in the, this part of our conversation to ask this question, but did you eventually find out why such atrocities were able to take place? 
None of that initial stage, no. It was, it was part of the process. I don't know if we can really you know, substantially say you know, we, we've got the reason why, um, but I think along the way you pick up little things which help you to comprehend the bigger picture. And one of them, of course, is the fact that God has entered into a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel, and therefore we actually there is an enemy. There's an enemy of God. There's an enemy of our souls. He wants to you know, move us away from our relationship with Jesus. But he also wants to uh, destroy the unique relationship between Almighty God and the nation of Israel. So if he can destroy the Jewish people, then, of course, he can destroy the validity of the existence of God. If there is a God, if he enters into a covenant with a nation and confirms it with an oath, then the integrity of God depends upon maintaining that covenant oath. Uh, so if the nation of Israel can be destroyed, then the enemy, Satan, can actually say, well, listen, there is no God because he can't keep his covenant promises. So I think that is the, the essence, the, the foundation of it all, that there is a strong desire from um, from Satan to destroy the nation of Israel, and he's attempted to do that time after time after time during history. But that's that's sort of I put that to one side in a sense because there is still you know there's the human being there's the human heart that perpetrates the atrocities you know and you look at Jeremiah in seventeen nine when he says the heart is evil above all things who understand it and and that's true that's what you see time after time after time so human beings are involved in this whole uh, narrative human beings perpetrating terrible things against the Jewish people. On the other side, there's the Jewish people themselves, the recipients of these terrible things. And then you just, you, you're faced with um, a, an individual question, the human heart. And you begin to think, my goodness, if, if the human heart can do that, then, you know, where am I at? Sort of a thing. So yeah. the, whole, the whole thing brings you actually back to reflect upon yourself. But, I, you know, I didn't sort of come to those sort of conclusions way back then. I've sort of come to those conclusions now, so I've jumped the gun a little bit. Well, these are deep and profound things, even touching on the idea of the evil in the human heart. And as Christian believers, uh, we can identify the sinfulness of human nature. And uh, when you see the Holocaust, which uh, is, as I mentioned, one of the darkest times in the history of the world, and six million Jews lost their lives at the hands of the Nazis. And so you have this uh, outcome of what happens in evil in the human heart. And the fact that this is happening to God's chosen people, as you say, uh, very, very powerfully, and I think very profoundly, uh, this is uh, the way that the covenant-keeping God shows that he actually will keep his covenant with his people because beyond those sorts of atrocities comes this restoration of the nation of Israel. Very, very powerful. And you've been able to take this next dimension, Kelvin, in writing the story of a family, uh, the Basili and Anna Jocks family. And I hope I've got the pronunciations right there. Uh, take us oh, into my. how you found this family. Um, well, I'll jump back a little bit and say that um, during the years that I uh, lived in Israel from uh, 81 onwards as a, as a Christian, um, it did, did get to know more and more. I worked with a Holocaust survivor on one occasion, and on another occasion I worked amongst Holocaust survivors in a hospital I was working at. So I began to have more and more 
personal contact um, with the, the issue at hand. The two pastors from the Messianic congregation that I helped set up at Christchurch in Jerusalem, um, they were also um, remnants, you might say, their parents were remnants of, of, a, of the Holocaust as well. So more and more as a, as a Christian, you begin to get close to the subject matter. Um, and then in 2006, I went on a tour to Eastern Europe and visited Auschwitz for the first time. That had a profound effect. And then on one occasion, after the end, at the end of that trip, I stayed in Warsaw, and I took a train by myself from Warsaw out to a little village called Treblinka. Um, because of that uh, little that childhood interest in Treblinka, I wanted to do this myself because you know, close to 300,000 Jewish people did that very same train trip from Warsaw out to Treblinka. Spent half a day walking around out there. It was a very eerie experience. Um, but all those experiences, every year Holocaust Day, all those experiences have never brought me to the point of wanting to go over a certain marker. With the Holocaust, when you do investigative research, for instance, you often will want to get close to the subject matter you're investigating. And like when I was doing the light horse and the Anzacs, for instance, uh, over many, many years, I'd actually go out as much as possible to locate places that uh, events took place. Get close to the subject matter and you speak about it with some passion and understanding. I never wanted to do that with the Holocaust because it was just too deep uh, and broad a subject. I never felt I wanted to get too close because I know what's involved when you do investigative research. You've got to get very close to the subject matter. And who would want to get close to a subject matter like the Holocaust? Yeah, let's be honest. It's the most heinous crime in world history. So there was a barrier there. But in April 2018, a colleague of mine, David Pelleggi, who's the rector at Christchurch, Jerusalem, and uh, there's also an archive there called the Conrad Schick Archive. David had been mentioning to me for some years about his desire to, um, to document what happened to the Jewish followers of Jesus, the Jewish Christians, the Hebrew Christians. Um, they weren't called Messianic Jews there, but in today's terminology, the, the Messianic Jews. So David wanted to document what happened to these people and how many actually died amongst the six million. And he had me in mind to do it, but I was involved in other things. But in April 2018, I felt, yes, it's time to do this. I'm prepared to do it. And then once you start, once you do that, then the Lord actually begins, well, in my instance, the Lord begins to actually give you materials and give you insight and give you a heart to continue on with it. So he's been my very best research assistant, let me tell you. That's the Holy Spirit. Um, and so then a number of things began to fall into place. The materials came to, to me. Then I started to do research and archives in Israel and then went on another trip to Poland and went very, very deeply into it on that particular trip, going to four of the five death camps, lots of concentration camps. Uh, see, for the, most of the audience may not know that there actually there's a difference between a death camp and a concentration camp. There were hundreds of concentration camps spread throughout Nazi Europe, but there are only five death camps, five camps specifically set up to murder Jewish people. And so... Uh, so on that trip, we did lots of things, went to forests, and a lot of Jewish people were shot. Again, most people think six million were gassed. That's not correct. In actual fact, over two million Jewish people were shot, perhaps more, perhaps up to 2.7 million, in forests and, and at Jewish cemeteries spread throughout Eastern Europe. So we located a number of those places as well. 
Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Our special guest is Kelvin Crombie. We're talking about his new book that tells the story of Jewish Christian victims of the Holocaust. And Kelvin, you were in uh, Europe and you came across this family, uh, the Jocks family. What was it that captured your imagination that said, this is the way I'm going to tell this story and uh, and bring to light these things that people don't necessarily understand about Jewish Christians? Um, yeah, well, first of all, what I've been trying to do is paint the, the broader picture. Before you get down to looking at one particular family, the Yotch family, who were all Jewish Christians, Jewish followers of Jesus, uh, who were part of the larger Hebrew Christian movement, you've really got, I have to, I had to understand what I call the mechanics of the Holocaust as best I could. And that really means going out and locating um, places where things have taken place, because you actually pick up things when you're actually on site, which you don't pick up in archives. Uh, and a second research trip I undertook, I went to 17 archives and collections belonging to British and North American uh, evangelical Christian organizations who had operated in Europe up until 1939. And one of those archives, or two of those archives actually, were based in Toronto in Canada. And they belonged to a man called Jacob Yotch. And Jacob's parents, Anna and Basilei, um, had gone through the Holocaust. And Jacob actually was the pastor for a very large Hebrew-speaking or um, Hebrew Christian congregation in Warsaw up until the beginning of the war. Well over a hundred Jewish followers of Jesus were in that congregation. Jacob was out of the country, was out of Poland when the war began. So he survived, uh, but his parents and siblings went through the Holocaust and his father was murdered by the Nazis. Jacob later went to Canada. And I won't go through all the details about how they developed a large archive, but Jacob Yotch later became the the head of the Hebrew Christian, uh, International Hebrew Christian Alliance, which became the Messianic Jewish Alliance, which is the overarching organization for all the Jewish followers of Jesus. So it became very, very important. But he had a large archive um, at, a, at the Wycliffe College, but also he had another archive in his family's home. His son had a, and his daughter, Anne and Philip, both had large collections. So I went to their place and began to go through a lot of materials, which they actually only had recently found. And then they brought out a large file, and I call it the German file. And this is because over a period of years, uh, Jacob was trying to get compensation for his mother. His mother had been beaten um, by the Nazis when they came to take her husband, Basile, and they shot him. And Anna survived, but was paralyzed from the waist downwards thereafter. So in the 1950s, um, Jacob Josh, the son, had tried to get compensation from the German government for the injuries sustained by his mother. So a lot of materials were accumulated, uh, affidavits and lawyers' materials and researchers, all sorts of stuff, and it was all in German. So this file was about 200 pages. I looked at it, went through, could, could recognize there was lots of biographical material there, so I photographed all that, and that was a gold mine, basically, from a researcher's perspective. So and then I guess, no doubt, you had to get some sort of translation. Of here, back here uh, in Western Australia, I had all that material translated, and here I could actually see here's an opportunity 
to tell the overall story, what happened to the Jewish followers of Jesus in Europe, what happened to the Jewish followers of Jesus in Poland, through looking at the lives of this one family, which went from 1880 when the, the parents were born all the way through, and because we just collected a lot of material. They had worked for the same organization that I'd worked for, for instance, so we, a lot of material was, was there on this family. So that is the reason why I decided, now I'll write the history of the, this family all the way through, and then you actually have to provide background, and it's through the background that you get uh, the bigger picture. So that, in a nutshell, is how we came down to uh, writing the story about the Yotch family, and, um, of course, with a huge amount of background material there as well. Well, and uh, thank you for correcting my pronunciation, because now that we're back to uh, just some very foundational things like Basilei and Anna Yotch and uh, Jewish Christian victims of the Holocaust, and to discover all of that material and to have a treasure trove for a researcher to then be able to base a book on this. Uh, let's talk about just a few of the things here that uh, that are, you know, just perhaps uh, new information for people who are listening to our conversation today. The idea that people might be called a non-Aryan Christian uh, that uh, differentiates the German-style uh, Christian from someone who's non-Aryan. These sorts of ways of breaking down uh, different identities. I wonder if you've got any thoughts on on how things were developing around that time towards the col- the Holocaust. Well, first of all, you have to realise that the, the from a Nazi world, the Nazi worldview was based upon. Um, the supremacy of the Aryan race, that is, let's say the German race, the Nordic race, Caucasian race, European race, but specifically the, the Aryans who were um, from Northern Europe, um, the supremacy. And that comes from a Darwinist perspective. There's no doubt at all that um, Darwinist thinking infiltrated into to Hitler and to the Nazi regime. It was part of their world view um, that there was a supreme race and there were other uh, inferior races. And, you know, those inferior races would in time be um, be destroyed, but the Nazis wanted to just help the process, and that is there is therefore to get rid of those that were inferior, primarily the Jewish people. Okay, so they decided that they were going to to do this. Not initially in 1933. The desire initially was not to murder Jewish people in 1933 when they took power. It was a process. And I've personally worked out there were seven phases. That's what's helped me with my research, seven phases leading up to the final solution. Uh, and in those phases, you see a progression of events which led to the ultimate desire to uh, decision to murder all. We but might pick up on some of those uh, phases shortly. But interestingly, as we, uh, as we form a foundation here for this conversation, uh, Kelvin, the idea of being a Jewish Christian... Uh, that meant that you were maligned on a whole lot of different dimensions because uh, you were really out on a limb in some sense if you were going to identify as Christian when you were a Jew. And that had problems for everyone, from the Jewish people to uh, the Germans and uh, everybody in between. Uh, Give us some idea how isolating it was if you were going to identify as a Christian, but you had a Jewish heritage. Yes, and very, very difficult for the Jewish followers of Jesus, those who were genuine in their faith and those who actually... Uh, became uh, a Lutheran or Catholic for socio-economic reasons. And I've worked out about seven categories of non-Aryan Christians, seven categories of Jewish people who, for one reason or another, were involved in the church. And there were 
so, um, believe for, genuinely that Jesus was the Messiah, but there were others for other reasons became members of the church in that period of time. But collectively, when the Nazis came knocking and, and their sympathizers, we have to realize it's not just Nazis, it's Nazis and their sympathizers. Um, when they came knocking, for instance, many Jewish people, many people that they went to had no idea at all they were Jewish. These are people, um, Jewish Christians. They had no idea because they could have been second or third generation people whose grandparents had become followers of Jesus or grandparents had converted for socioeconomic reasons or grandparents had converted in order to marry a Gentile. So three generations later, many people had no idea at all they were Jewish. They didn't identify as Jewish people. They were assimilated into the host society. Now, for many genuine followers of Jesus, that was also the case, especially for those who were in the Catholic Church. In the Protestant Church, many of them actually retained some form of Jewish identity. So they would call themselves Jewish Christians. They would call themselves Hebrew Christians. So there were different categories. But overarching, the overarching principle is this. It made no difference at all in the Nazi world view uh, what you believed in. If a Jewish people believed in Buddha, if a Jewish person believed in Karl Marx, uh, if a Jewish people person believed in Jesus the Messiah, it made no difference. It wasn't faith that um, propelled this Nazi worldview. It was bloodline, what they were called bloodline. You're either Aryan or you're not. And so if a person... I firmly believed that Jesus was Messiah, was a very leading person in the church. It made no difference at all. What's your bloodline? Who are your parents? Who are your grandparents? Are they Jewish? You're Jewish. Okay, then you're a non-Aryan Christian. You're not one of us. We don't want your bloodline infiltrating into the into the pure Aryan stock. Now, for the people in the church, that was doubly difficult. Um, they were ostracized by the Jewish community. They were ostracized by the Germans and the Nazis and their sympathizers. But for Jewish people in the church, the Nazis saw these people as coming in through the back door, infiltrating into German society through the back door, because most Jewish people were very much involved in the Jewish community. Okay? So the Nazis could see them. Oh, you're Jewish. But for those who are in the church, you see, from a Nazi worldview point of view, every German institution was to further their worldview, was to further Nazism, including the church. The church basically was seen by the Germans as a cultural institution that has to be Nazified. Okay, so that had to come under Nazi control. So if you had Jewish Christians in the church, well, that was a real problem for the Nazis. They're coming through the back door. We have to get rid of them. So the Jewish followers of Jesus initially in Germany, primarily in Germany initially, um, they, they had a very, very difficult time. And then later, of course, in the rest of Europe as well, particularly in Poland, where there were large numbers of Jewish people in the church. So okay, whichever Kelvin, way you look at it, um, it was going to be um, a very difficult road for uh, those Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians, non-Aryan Christians, because they were not accepted by the, the Germans and Nazis, and certainly not accepted in many cases also by the host Jewish community, because... Okay, uh, Kelvin, they were outcasts and they were rejected on all sides. Kelvin, let me ask you here, uh, Jacob Yotch, he was in Poland when the Nazis, in fact, invaded Warsaw, but uh, he was able to escape. Uh, take us into what happened that enabled Jacob's story to be told today in the way that you're able to tell it because uh, he avoided initial capture. Uh, actually, he wasn't in Warsaw, Neil. He was out of Warsaw when war began. Um, he had been visiting 
England. His wife was English, but he'd been visiting, speaking for the organisation that he worked for called CMJ. Um, and then he receives an invitation from another evangelical Anglican organisation called CMS, sort of at the last minute. They had a guest speaker for their annual meeting, and that guest, guest speaker cancelled. And so they asked Jacob Yotch if he'd come back from Poland. Uh, again, he'd been from Poland, he'd been to England already once in the year, to go back again to speak at the annual conference. And so Jacob accepted the invitation, so he went to England to speak in the conference, and therefore was not in, in Poland when war began. In actual fact, a few days before war began, he was ready to go back to Warsaw, but he, um, he couldn't get there. They, they wouldn't allow him to catch a train from London down to, the, down to Dover, etc., etc. They said, sorry, there's no more trains to the continent, transport to the continent. So he actually was uh, stranded in Britain, um, which was okay because he had a, an English wife and he had a child on the way. And so uh, that's why he was not in Poland when war began. Um, so he remained in England, continued to work with this organisation, received information as best he could. And, you know, he was there in England, therefore, at the end of the war, uh, when his mother, who survived the Holocaust, um, managed to get out in quite a miraculous way from Poland through into Germany to a DP camp and finally came to join him in 1947 uh, in London. So that's how Jacob uh, remained in England uh, during the war. Um, and he had a series of family members, uh, one of those Jersey who remained in Warsaw and uh, and would have experienced what life under the Nazi regime would have meant. Uh, and, and of course, uh, other family members were able to escape to Russia, and that uh, was okay for a period of time. But uh, other family members, they some of them were dispersed. Yes, the uh, the actual nuclear family of the of the uh, the sons or four sons and the parents they were all in Poland before the war was a very very large country and it can encompass what part of what is now Belarus and uh, Ukraine. But when the Nazis invaded Poland, they uh, divided it into three regions. The western region was annexed to Germany. The eastern region, because of a, a treaty between Germany and the Soviet Union, the eastern area of Poland was uh, annexed by the Soviet Union. And there was a large area in between which came under direct German control. And uh, it was in that area called the general government that the, the Nazis began to implement many of their, their policies. Um, but the Yotch family, who were living in a city called Lvov, which is now Lviv in Ukraine, and that pre-39 was part of Poland. But now after the, um, the defeat of Poland, it was divided, as I said, and it became under Soviet control. So between 1939 to 1941, Lviv was under Soviet control. It wasn't easy for them, but at least there was no atrocities against the Jewish people. But on the 22nd of June 1941, the, the Germans broke the treaty with Russia, with the Soviet Union, sorry, as it was then known as, and they invaded the Soviet Union. And so therefore, in time, Lvov came under direct German control. And then problems began for the Yotch family and for all the Jewish people in that region. Okay. Uh, and so they, they, were, they were aware of the fact that they knew about the Nuremberg Laws. They knew that under the Nuremberg Laws, they were 100% Jewish, and they knew their faith would mean anything. Okay. And so what they did then, when the Germans took control over Lvov, Anna, the mother, 
passed herself off as a Polish lady. They had a house in Lviv, and the Germans took that over, took the house over, and they employed her, as, uh, inverted commas, she was a slave labourer, basically, as the housemaid. And so she looked after these German officers who were in the house and others who were there, and they gave her the kitchen. She, so she lived in the kitchen and did all the catering for these Germans. <coughs> okay. Excuse me. So that's how she was able to survive. Okay, Kelvin. But her husband was definitely um, Jewish and had a higher profile, of course. He'd been a, a, an evangelist, a missionary among um, the Jewish people and was known. So a member of the local evangelical congregation in Lvov, and that's where all the Hebrew Christians in Lvov would have gone to, some places, the, the Hebrew Christians were so, there were so many of them, they had their own distinct congregations. But in Lvov, they joined with the evangelical congregation. One member of that congregation hid Basily in a woodshed. And they hid him for two and a half years. And that's how Basily actually survived, lived, lived during that time under German occupation. Well, it is a fascinating and uh, difficult story to hear, and uh, it uh, sounds so far removed from what we appreciate as our Australian reality. Hey, we're taking calls, and I've invited listeners to call through one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's take a call from a listener. Erica is on the Gold Coast in Queensland. Hello, Erica. Welcome along. Yes, thank you. Um, my grandmother was taken in nineteen forty four. Um, although she had converted to Roman Catholicism. And yes, each story is a highlighting of the terrible things that have happened. But we also need to remember that in this Holocaust, where the end of the word is C-A-U-S-T, that um, it was the Nazi system, not Germans. And the Nazis in many countries around that they invaded, they used the locals, the local police, the local lawmakers. Um, so they were, the Nazis were the brains. But even there, there were some, very few Nazis who actually were Christians and um, were killed for it and um, became part of, there was one or two, I don't know how many. Erica, wonderful yeah. hearing your thoughts and uh, an amazing family connection there. And uh, no doubt this story is uh, raising all sorts of things in your imagination. But Kelvin, you had a thought or two for Erica and, and the uh, story that she's relaying. Well, there's two things here. First of all, it's important to, to realise that not all Germans were Nazis. Um, in Germany itself, because that's why I keep emphasising it's the Nazi worldview, it's not necessarily the German worldview, I think we fail to realise that in Germany itself there were large numbers of people who, who did oppose the Nazi regime in one form or another, um, more than just Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Niemöller. There were many, many others that did whatever they could do um, to oppose that Nazi worldview. And secondly, um, as just been pointed out, many of those who did perpetrate the atrocities in Nazi-occupied Europe were not Germans, okay? They were Nazi sympathisers. There were people in Ukraine, in Belarus, in Poland, and all the different countries um, who would um, do the dirty work, you might say, for, for the, um, the Nazis. For the, and many times it was German soldiers. When, the, when they invaded the Soviet Union, for instance, um, Hitler gave what's called a Commissar's Order, 
which basically meant that the, also the German officers, German uh, soldiers could be involved in some of the atrocities as well. Okay, Erica, just so we've got Erica on the line. Erica, thank you so much for calling through and sharing uh, that little bit of your family story. Is there a connection in your background, Erica? Uh, clearly you've got some is it Jewish heritage. Uh, is there a connection there with, uh, with being Jewish Christian or a Messianic type of Christian? Is there any of that connection in your background? Not in the background, but I do go and visit Messianic services when I can. Well, Erica, I want to thank you so much for calling through and and uh, being part of our conversation today. Erica from the Gold Coast at one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. If you'd like to join in our conversation, before we go any further, uh, Kelvin, how important is it for Messianic Christians today, uh, knowing that Christian Jews were either shot or gassed in the Holocaust? Is there a connection there to? you know, those foundations of being a part of the Jewish people. What are your thoughts for, for Messianic Christians today and how they relate to the story you're telling? Well, I think it's very, very important that we do research this, this story. Um, I'm not the only one doing it, of course. There are some others. Um, I'm just dedicating a lot of time to it. But I do think it's important that the, the Jewish community per se recognize the fact that there were large numbers of Jewish followers of Jesus, Jewish Christians who also died in the Holocaust. They died as Jews. And it's very, very important that the Messianic movement also recognize that, yes, uh, many of their co-religionists, those in faith as well as in their, in their bloodline, uh, died. And I think it's, it's incredibly important for the history of the Messianic movement to, to understand what happened um, to the Jewish Christians during the Holocaust, yes. If we're reading a novel, we often like to think that there's a happy ending. I wonder if you can uh, reflect for a few moments on how the ending comes about in the story of Basilei and Anna Yotch, uh, because it's not all happy, and when you're telling history, you've got to tell it like it is. No, that's a very good point. When, I, when you do research on a subject like this, you can very easily get, um, you might say, depressed. And I've actually had a number of meltdowns while doing this research project because it's so heavy, so deep, and so terrible. But every now and again, you actually do find little glimmers of light along the way, um, where, whereby, for instance, you know, we hear of people coming to faith in Jesus during the war. In the Warsaw Ghetto, for instance, I found... Uh, evidence there was a, a man who was um, a, a scientist and he was uh, assimilated into the Catholic Church, Jewish, but assimilated into the Catholic Church. And he actually said he, he actually came to know his faith while being in, in the Warsaw Ghetto. And he uh, was involved in several Jewish people coming to know the Lord um, Jesus in, in the ghetto. So you, you hear little stories like that, and you realize, well, that's probably happening in many other places as well. But when we want to look at something uh, with lots of um, hope. And let's look at the Yotch family, for instance. They survived, uh, apart from Buzzley. Buzzley was, was uh, discovered right towards the end of the war. Buzzley was discovered. Uh, he was informed on um, by a Polish person and um, was informed on, and they came and did a, uh, a body search. That's how they knew he was Jewish. They found him and did a body search and realized that he was Jewish because of the rite of circumcision, and he was he was shot and Anna survived just, and um, as I said, at the end of the war, um, in a, quite a miraculous way, her other son, Pavel, and his wife, Elizabeth, who were in Lvov, managed to get 
uh, um, get out of Poland, got to Germany. And finally, uh, Anna got to, to England where she was with um, Jacob. Now, in that particular story itself, you have the survival, yes, of a person and ultimately getting to, to England and they went to, uh, on to, um, on to uh, uh, Canada. But in, in Anna's life, for instance, you see that at the, at the end of the war, the, the Jewish people were decimated. You know, six million were Jewish people were murdered. And you would think, well, can anything rise from the ashes? Can life come out of, um, of this terrible situation? Well, within three years, you had the, the state of Israel being established. And when, who would ever have thought that, that from the ashes, something of the Holocaust, something actually could arise? And the state of Israel was birthed three years later. But also, it's important to realize the vast majority of the Hebrew Christians in the world at that time were in Europe. And many of those were in Germany and many were in Poland. Many were in in Hungary, for instance. And I would say, um, without all the data in my hands right now, I'd say the vast majority were killed during the Holocaust. That is the Jewish Christians. Um, So the Messianic movement of today, what we then call the Hebrew Christian movement, was basically decimated. Yes, there was, there was people in the States, there were people in um, Britain, but the vast majority numerically were destroyed. Yet, from that, life came forth, because in time, you had survivors who came to Israel, survivors who went to the UK, survivors who went to the United States and Canada, quite a few of them. And then the whole Messianic movement began to, to develop. And in time, Jacob Yotch, um, who you might say was a survivor in, in one sense, he actually went on to become the head of the whole he- International Hebrew Christian Alliance, which became the Messianic Jewish Alliance. And, of course, now, as you know, um, there are more followers, Jewish followers of Jesus worldwide and also in Israel than it's ever been in history. So also, in one sense, you could almost say Hitler, the Hitlerites, the Nazi worldview, the enemies of, of God Almighty, they tried to destroy the Jewish people, they just tried to destroy the Hebrew Christian movement, but they did not succeed. And then today you see Israel as a testimony um, that God keeps his covenant promises, and you also see this very, very vibrant Hebrew Christian Messianic Jewish movement in Israel and worldwide. I think as so many listeners will be able to see the huge value in being able to tell this Yotch story. But let me ask you about something that I think will be quite controversial here, Kelvin. And that is that uh, there were a lot of Christian organizations, churches working in Europe in the time of the rise of the Nazi regime. And uh, wonderful to hear of stories of these Hebrew Christians uh, but some people will point to the idea, and uh, whether it's truthful or not, and uh, and I'll just get your thoughts here, but the idea that some Christians uh, during the rise of the Nazi regime were in fact sympathisers with the Nazis. Any thoughts here about how maybe the Jewish uh, people today might look at this story that you're telling and say, wow, there were people who were on our side, but then there was an awful lot of people maybe that were on not on our side. Any thoughts around that? Ah, there's lots of thoughts on that, and we do give quite a bit of uh, mention of that in the publication. Yes, it is entirely true, uh, and you see that in, in no better place than in Germany. And as I said before, the the Nazis wanted every German institution to uphold their worldview, and that included the church. And you did have a lot of people in the church who were 
wanting to make the church more Nazi. Okay? And that became, it was known as the Deutsche Christian, the, the, the German church. And then you had others within the evangelical church in Germany said, no, we actually have to uphold the biblical evangelical worldview. And there you have Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Niemöller as being typical of that group. And they became known as the Confessing Church. So there was a very, very strong uh, struggle within the German church. And that, in a sense, actually is a picture of what is happening in other parts as well. The church um, is comprised of those who, in a sense, are upholding uh, a biblical worldview as opposed to those who are upholding uh, perhaps a partial biblical worldview, but also a worldview that they've imbibed from their society as well. And there are, there's a lot of factors as to why the church uh, in Germany and in Europe um, um, had that attitude and, and didn't accept Jewish people, were actually sympathizers. Um, Many times people say that the Roman Catholic Church was opposed to the Jewish people because the Pope never stood up. Well, that, that may be true. But on the other hand, um, many, many Roman Catholics actually hid Jewish people. Uh, as far as I know, the vast majority of those who are honoured as righteous amongst the Gentiles in the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem are actually Poles and probably Polish Catholics. So there were many Polish Catholics who did uh, whatever they could to hide Jewish people. And there were classic examples of leaders of Catholic churches who actually went out on the extra limb for Jewish people. I mean, in Lvov, for instance, um, a man, a family was hidden. Um, he actually went on to become the chief rabbi of the Israeli Air Force. His name was Rabbi David Kahana. He was hidden by the Greek Catholic bishop, Andrei Sheptitsky, um, and he hid other people as well. Risked his own life, you might say, in order to save Jewish people. Kelvin. In the Netherlands, when the decision was made to transport the Jewish people to the concentration camps, to the death camps, sorry, uh, in July of 1942, the person who'd led the campaign against this was the Roman Catholic Archbishop, Johannes de Jong. And the Nazis then said, hey, listen, who are you? We, we, we're running this show. We're going to show you who's boss. And they went around and then rounded up all the Jewish Catholics, uh, well, not all of them straight away, but over 100 Jewish Catholics rounded up, and they primarily came from convents and, and nunneries um, and monasteries, and they were rounded up, and within a week or so, 100 or so of them were actually murdered in Auschwitz. And that came because of the decision of the Roman Catholic Archbishop of the Netherlands. So you got okay. there's a lot of anomalies there. There's no yeah, lots of anomalies, a lot of unclear things, and there is there is remaining controversy there. But uh, you do dispel some of that by saying there is good and bad in there, and that you need to look at perhaps uh, uh, maybe a uh, a focus on what is good because most people tend to focus on the bad. Let's take one more call. Greg is on the line from Sydney. Hello, Greg. Welcome. Good to hear everyone. I just um, confer like along the lines of that not all Germans uh, were, were Nazis. My father's father uh, was in the First World War and he went to war for Australia because he, he, he was German but he moved, migrated to Australia and he loved Australia that much that he wanted to, to, to fight for Australia. He ended up in Israel. Uh, he was in the Light Horse. Um, and he was given so much a hard time because he was German when he came back and changed everybody's name. And um, then his eldest son married a Jew. And 
which makes me a Jew, and I'm actually starting the process of looking into uh, moving to Israel. I've been there twice. I love Israel. Um, great people, um, and they're, they're kin. So, yeah, exactly. Not all Germans were Nazis, um, and there were people that, that were prepared to go to war and fight against them because... Oh, I think we might have... Greg, I think we might have lost uh, Greg dropping out there. But, uh, Kelvin, a quick thought here. Uh, there's Greg as an example of how complex things get uh, when you've got intermarriage and, uh, you know, different uh, different nationalities combined. What are your thoughts quickly for Greg? Um, yes, OK. Uh, I just want to combine everything which has been said on, on this particular situation. In the church, there were those who hid Jewish people. There were those who persecuted Jewish people, yes, and there were there was good and bad, etc., etc. But the end of the story, really, Neil, is this. You look at all this stuff and you say, okay, how would I have reacted if I was in that same situation? It's okay for us today to actually judge those who were in Europe at the time for their attitude. Um, But I think we all have to take it back to ourselves. If we were in exactly that same situation back then, if our life was in danger, the lives of our families were in danger, or family... How would we have reacted? Honestly, I don't know how I would have reacted in, um, if I was put on the spot back then. Um, if a Jewish Jewish person came to the door, um, I don't know. I, I'd hope, I would hope I would do the right thing. But quite honestly, do any of us really know how we would, would have reacted? I think we're all in the same boat there, Kelvin. The how would we react? Would we do the right and honourable thing then, but also today if the same thing happened today as well okay we have run out of time i want to thank greg for his call thank you so much greg and for uh, others who've participated in this conversation uh, we are going to have to wrap things up and i want to let listeners know how they can get a hold of kelvin's book as you can tell uh, there's wonderful detail a story to tell here that is uh, well researched and uh, no doubt you'll enjoy the read, especially if you've got some connection in your family heritage uh, to any of these uh, nationalities that we're talking about and any of these religious viewpoints that we're talking about. Kelvin Crombie has written numerous books about the history of the restoration of Israel. Uh, he's even uh, highlighted the role of the Anzacs in that restoration process. Well, his latest book is what we've been talking about over this past hour. Basilei and Anna Yotch, Jewish Christian Victims of the Holocaust. Now, how can you get a hold of it? Perhaps the easiest way to get a hold of it from wherever you're listening right now is to simply visit Vision Christian Store. Uh, You'll find a link there at vision.org.au to get a hold of the book. It's called... Basilei and Anna Yotch, Jewish Christian Victims of the Holocaust. You can also get it at stores like Kurong. Uh, You can also get it from the website cmj.org.au. Uh, from from heritageresources.com.au. Uh, but uh, for those uh, looking for a easy access, you might try Vision Christian Store at vision.org.au. Kelvin Crombie, uh, always enjoy our conversations. Thank you so much for sharing these thoughts and your heart with us once again today on 2020. Uh, thank you, Neil. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.